Hey listeners, there's a spoiler warning for this episode. If you have not played the video game Death Stranding and you wish to not have the game spoiled for you, you might want to skip that to the eighth minute. I've been I've been playing this I've been playing this game. I was a little late coming to it. It took me a while to get a PS5. You know all the the chip shortages. You know we'll talk about industrial policy. Biden's America is why I could not get a PS5, even though I'm in Australia. Uh, that's called globalization. <laughs> but I'm a little late coming to it. But I've been playing a lot of hours of Death Stranding. Oh uh, oh. And, and and I'm about 50 hours into this game. I'm beginning to suspect this thing's a big metaphor for the internet. <laughs> <laughs> it's about America and how yeah, much I'm we need to connect to America. About the internet, about uh, about a, a disconnected America. But also, like every good game with a Japanese director, game director, it's about God and heaven somehow. <laughs> and <laughs> killing God. Yeah, dethroning yes, killing God. Yeah, you have to dethrone God. That's who's who might be your mom or dad or well, I'm <laughs> don't try, I'm spoil trying, anything. I, yeah, I know you're not. I know you're not there. So I'm trying to. I'm fe- I'm dribbling in lies with the, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. truth. <laughs> I, I eventually would love to watch the HBO show based on the video game in five years too. So don't spoil it for me. <laughs> oh my god. Can you imagine uh, the HBO show? I mean, actually, there would be a really there'd be a really fun way to do it, and there'd be a really boring way to do it, and there'd be a really impenetrable, like impenetrable, like weird way of doing yeah, it. Yeah, where uh, four hours are literally just um, walking around. Yeah, I would love to watch a real time, like like a four episode arc of trying to uh, walk over some rocky terrain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that, that's, that's, uh, that's been my time lately. It, it is very funny though. That it's like, you know, I, you know, I sit down all day and, you know, I sit at the bad screen and I do really annoying, aggravating, uh, Sisyphusian, um, task all day for my job. And then the nights and weekends, I go sit down at the good screen, the bigger screen, and I do <laughs> annoying, aggravating, Sisyphusian <laughs> task for fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way God intended. <laughs> it, it does feel like, uh, Death Stranding does feel like a weirdly like Protestant game as well where it's like there is no fun there's no enjoyment there's just the day in day out routine dregs of doing task why because that is your your role and your duty on earth is to do and work and do incredibly task. confusing interruptions of that that don't really make sense uh but nonetheless you have to go through them like have you got into the parts in the trenches with the trench um with the uh, with the soldiers, yeah, you get sucked up in the chiral storm. Yeah, and then all that's, of a sudden um, you are fighting Mads Mikkelsen. <laughs> for a while, the only reaction I had to that was, "What the fuck?" I was walking through <laughs> that. What? What the? Why do I have a gun? Kinda. Why is there a demon captain that keeps appearing behind or in front of me? Why is Mads Mikkelsen in this game? Um, 
You'll learn later why, but it won't make any sense. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like that the like after you you know come out of the the chiral storm and you're trying to explain to people what happened, no one believes you. They're just all like, uh, Sam, are you insane? You were only gone for three seconds. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, what? I like that there's none of the, uh, like nobody, like, uh, you know, in a lot of RPGs and, and games, and, you know, fantasy games and stuff like this, like people suspend their disbelief and they're just like, you know, they just immediately believe you. Be like, oh my God, what crazy thing happened? But here everyone's like gaslighting you being like, mm-hmm. bro, you're insane. Like that shit did not happen. Like you need to check your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is also really funny. They're like, yeah, we don't really understand chiral energy and, and materials and storms, but it's a little silly if you think that that chiral storm made you have a weird flashback into a weird meta landscape of how that is related to uh, Mads Mikkelsen and his connection to you, how, somehow. I also like that he comes out of the, Sam comes out of the Kyle storm covered in blood, like other people's <laughs> blood and his yeah. own blood. And, and the whole time and I was like, just waiting for him to be like, I am covered in blood right yeah, now. <laughs> right. It's just in your head. It's just in your head. <laughs> it is silly. It is a little silly. I can't really even really imagine what was going on through their head, going on in their heads. They're like, yeah, it's only been three seconds and yeah, you're covered in blood. But I mean, come on, Sam. That One of just those thematic uh, grenades exploded. That's all. That's yeah, all. exactly. That's all that <laughs> happened. This is a, this is unrelated to what you guys are talking about, but kind of tangentially re- related because we're spoiling a video game for people that have never played it before. But uh, did you guys see that someone someone shut down an entire Mastodon uh, server because someone got upset that? Uh, person was spoiling the new uh, Harry Potter video game. <laughs> Hell what? yeah. Hell yeah. This is why decentralized <laughs> servers are great. Like give all, all powers to the mods. <laughs> uh, that's um, mods deserve to have the, uh, the divine mandate to, to rule God. as they see, please. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. I think that um, maybe we should like float Harry Potter spoilers in more servers and see what happens, what falls apart. <laughs> Yo, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> the slaves revolt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. The game is racist. <laughs> Extremely <laughs> racist. With Judeo Bolshevism, blood libel, a secret cabal of, uh, of the goblins that are thinly veiled, deeply anti Semitic characters. Um, but. Don't worry about it. And if you spoil anything about that, I will end this server. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, uh, my email is backing up. Not not like in my job, but like in my game. The email is backing yeah. up. I need to go work <laughs> through my emails. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, friends and enemies. 
It's episode 232 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And yet again, one of my favorite things has happened, where we presage some piece of analysis, some commentary, some conclusions, that then almost verbatim appear later in the premier financial newspaper, the FT. I fucking love it when this happens. I love when we shit talk some shit, like some, it's like some analysis on the podcast. And then later I see the same analysis or the same conclusions, uh, it being, being said in, in the FT. I, I, don't, I don't know who, I don't know who that, if that says anything about us or if that says something about the FT, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I do love it that like we more often than not, we are on par with with the uh the 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 premier the august the creme de la creme of financial journalism the greatest marxist rag we have ft alpha phil that that is true that is true but the latest the latest was um a uh an alphaville uh uh app like op-ed uh uh called the title the new current thing for vcs mourning the implosion of web3 hype thy name is generative ai i mean hmm. all right, no points because this is obvious this was an obvious one but the point but the larger point remains that hmm. it's that we draw a lot on the ft for the for tmk but i think the ft draws a lot if not directly from TMK, then TMK the thought uh, for, 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 for their <laughs> yeah, from, articles. From immortal TMK thought, from the well of, of neo-Luddism that we all like to you know, That's right. pull the, from. Um, the immortal science of <laughs> Marxism-Luddism. <laughs> right, right. And it is, it's, a, it's a good one, too, I think. Like, there's been like a bit of a, uh, an attempt you know, to debate... What's gonna go, what's gonna be going on with um, uh, generative AI? How should we interpret it? You know, how should it be deployed? What actual threat does it have to things? You know, but this article is a really nice look. Like you said, is not not like an exactly new take, but it is a really good look at by focusing in on venture capitalists and, and how they're talking about generative AI with a bit of a skeptical. Um, a pretty skeptical look, I would say. Yeah, surprisingly skeptical. It, it is written by um, Senado Sullivan, uh, mm-hmm. who's a senior researcher at Harvard Business School's Institute for Strategy and Competitiveness. So this mm-hmm. is an op-ed published, but it is tagged uh, FT Alphaville. But it, it's a, it is a nice look, like generally correct. I mean, also, I, like... We can talk a little bit about it. I just really wanted to highlight that, like, once again, TMK thought reigns supreme uh, in mm-hmm. the FT and beyond. There, there is a really nice kind of description of the investment models of venture capital, which I think really gets to the heart of, of how VC actually works. And as is the case with a lot of the FT and, and yes, that like, you know, the, the, the marriage between Marxism and the FT is strong for sure. Uh, but like the FT also 
they they often come to the same types of analysis and, and conclusions that we draw and that like trash future draws and stuff like that, which is also why like, you know, FT journalists are routinely guessed on trash future as well. Like, you know, there's like, there's a strong handshake happening, but the FT also, because they are the, you know, the, the paper record for the uh, bourgeois economy, they have to come to these conclusions and analyses and like, a really belated and begrudging way, you know, like they, they need a couple struggle sessions to purge themselves of the, of the, of the, the bourgeois hangups that they have before they can really like actualize their true potential as a, uh, as, as not just journalists do reporting on political economy, but journalists doing the critique of political economy. We've seen, I think they've been, or a lot of their op-eds, but also some of the, you know, the staff writing. I think, you know, my favorite era or some of my favorite writers there, you know, people like um, Isabella Kaminica, uh, you know, have been like really honed in on on dysfunctional political economies. Like you said, there's still things that need to shift, but like their their insistence on it, their desire for um, functional markets or for markets that are a little bit more rational, a little bit more resilient to bubbles, a little bit more ruled by um, actually productive th- uh, enterprises. I think dovetails with, you know, what you'd expect from a researcher at, uh, HBS, um, who's focused on strategy and competitiveness, like this is going to be a a market orientation, and so it's a ni- it's nice to get the the little um, little horseshoe theory going on here, where from the left and the right, <laughs> in the sense of market of being pro market um, or pro capitalist market, maybe um, an anti capitalist market, we can agree on one thing, which is that. Um, this is bullshit. A generally is is complete and utter bullshit, uh, and is going to be um, and is familiar and should be familiar to people who just paid attention for the last year and thought about the last big thing that VCs tried to shove down our throats, which was uh, anything related to Web three and crypto and and SPACs before that. Oh right. Remember God. SPACs? <laughs> Remember the year of SPACs? <laughs> Please. <laughs> oh my God, in the SPAC bubble. That was an insane one. And then it died as quickly as it came. Right. And like this, this FT piece does mention that, you know, they say, and this is where I think some of the, like the, you know, purge yourself of the belated begrudging analysis and just fully embrace it. Right. Where they say that, you know, last year revealed that a lot of much hyped companies were actually long-term capital sinkholes that required low rates and investor euphoria to bail out the performance of VC funds. The catastrophic performance of nearly 1000 SPACs since 2020 has helped in and retail investors on the business models that startups were trying to scale. And they go on to say that, like, it's now especially apparent that Web3, crypto exchanges, and NFTs, while a temporary Hail Mary that created many successful ev- exits, won't be a venture capital focus moving forward. Like, they, they say the right stuff, but they do so in this way that's like, oh, 
you know, we we're only just now revealing that these ca- that these companies were capital sinkholes, or oh, we're only just <laughs> now realizing that Web three was uh, engineered to uh, to to facilitate successful exits for VCs, while everyone else was left holding the bag. Like, like no, we knew this <laughs> from the beginning. Yeah, I knew this before they were created. This is yes. how eternal that knowledge is, <laughs> right? Yeah. But they can't come out and say that completely. Like the mm. the article is a really nice harbinger, or I hope it's a harbinger that the that the broader tide is turning against venture capital and the VC model of uh, investment and innovation. Um, but like, it's still not there yet. But I I think having a an an op ed in the FT that is like that also does not pull its punches in other ways. Um, is hopefully a nice little like harbinger that some broader shift is happening. Yeah, you know, I think one interesting thing here is like, you know, looking at how they conceptualize venture capital, right, with this greater value theory model and the greater fool theory model. And, and the idea that, okay, in the former, you have startups that are sustainably high growth and you can exit or IPO um, or get acquired. Right. And then the second, the latter being, uh, you, you invest in like a loss leader, you invest in like a loss intensive firm that's hoping to or trying to convince, uh, investors that it can scale or that it should be acquired or that it should be inflated in valuation. Right. Um, and that they just need someone to come in and buy the bag of shit that they're hoist, they're foisting. And pointing out, I think correctly, you know, that, that a lot of startups don't actually have sustainably high growth when they're being created or when they're being developed or, you know, when uh, throughout their lives. Um, and that this is, you know, kind of key to the venture capital investment model where you're operating off the assumption that it's really only like one or two investments are going to get you like excessive outsized returns while the rest will get you middling uh, returns or even losses. While one problem with the former theory um, and the model of investing, right, is that it's hard to actually find startups that are useful for reliable and excessive returns. Um, and on the flip side of that, it might be easy to find way, much more ways to dump bags onto people who want to buy uh, buy you out of something, whether it's uh, another investor, whether it's another company, whether it's the public markets. Um, but that now the off ramps, as, as they put it, are closing, right? You know, the, the SPACs are, the SPACs are gone. There's also been the evidence that a lot of these, uh, tech, tech company models just simply don't work. Uh, the interest rates are going up, and so you don't really have much to coast on if you're thinking about uh, using zero interest rates to, to try to justify looking for returns that come in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, right? Um, and there is like a general flailing trying to find the next thing that can be used to rationalize uh, directing billions of dollars and extracting billions more, right? Uh, especially in money that has been sunk into failed gambits like Web3, like crypto, like all the NFTs and all these digital assets, right? And so, and so, you know, where does that leave venture capital 
today, right? Would venture, does venture capital look at the past decade and say, wow, you know, like we should maybe focus on ventures that can provide us with returns, even if they're not as excessive, we could, we should uh, focus on cultivating, you know, models of investment that are sustainable, that don't rely on cheap money, that don't rely on fools buying us out, don't rely on over uh, overinflated valuations, that don't rely on lying to the public and regulators and to investors, you know, or we could keep doing that shit. Anybody want to guess which one they did? <laughs> uh yeah, and 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 to that as well. Another another thing that I hope we start seeing a tide turning against, and I want to you know deflate the the this this myth of like venture capitalists as these like big risk takers, right? Like you know they got they got you know they they got the big they got big balls. They're taking big risk. You know they're just you know bulls in the market. Uh, you know all of that is. All that is such a, uh, they really brilliantly have like created this mythology around themselves and, you know, and, and as such being like, you know, these are, these are the cowboys of capital, right? That like, and we need them, right? We need these cowboys of capitalism, these, you know, people who are, have a, a, a massive appetite for risk, you know, that are able to, to, you know, play, you know, gamble with the best of them, pick and choose when all of this bullshit, you know, which is like a, a huge part of the mythology of venture capital. I want, I, I hope we start seeing this also start getting debunked and deflated. I want to that point, I want to read um, a, a few sentences from an article we've mentioned before by Francesca Koiman, who's a political economist in the in Europe, who's written some really great stuff on venture capital, and in particular, uh, the the article I'm referencing now is one that came out recently in the journal uh, EPA Economy and Space. And it's called "Imprinting the Economy: The Structural Power of, fin- of Venture Capital." But here she talks about the the actual like risk model um, and the you know, and the value model of venture capital. And I think it's really important to keep in mind where you know she writes. VCs have the upside potential of 20% of all capital gains, while typically only risking 1% of committed capital, which is then sweetened by the reliable yearly management fee. In contrast, capital providers pay that fee and have the full capital gains risk while only receiving 80% of potential returns. This value model counters the stereotype of venture capitalists as brave risk takers. VC, as an asset class, has a higher risk than other assets, such as listed companies. But this risk is arguably carried to a larger degree by the capital providers. Now, to, to, you know, in other words, what's happening here is a real difference between the, the, uh, the GPs and LPs of a VC firm. You know, the GPs are the general partners. These are the, uh, the investors. You know, these are the people we hear about, like, you know, Chris Dixon or, uh, you know, and, you know, Mark Andreessen or, you know, whatever, whatever, right? Like, these are the people we tend to talk about as VCs are these GPs of VC firms who are like, you know, Picking and choosing investments. They're do you know they're the ones writing up the the investment briefs. They're the ones that you know startups are pitching to. Um, you know they are the active uh, you know managers of these investors or of, the, of these investments. 
And then the LPs, the limited partners in the in the firm are the people actually providing capital. And these are largely, you know, in a lot of cases, these are like institutional capital, right? It's like pension funds uh, or, or, or banks or, you know, rich people who are, look, you know, celebrities or other rich people who are looking to, in, you know, invest some of their money, uh, right? Like, you know, these are the people actually providing capital. Um, and and that, that's a really big difference here between the GPs and the LPs, general partners and limited partners of VC firms and who's bearing the risk, right? Like while the, the, the limited partners, you know, the capital providers are often like pretty silent. You know, we, you don't know about the fact that, you know, some like, you know, a uh, Toronto teachers pension fund has dumped a bunch of money into like Andrew, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, for example, um, you know, just as a hypothetical, I don't know um, offhand if they have actually done that, but as a hypothetical, right? Like, you know, you don't know about these like anonymous capital providers, but you do know about, you know, if you, especially if you follow this and read the tech press the way that we do, you do know about the LPs, the, the investment managers, and they are the ones that get the reputation for being, you know, grand risk takers, for being, you know, having uh, the ability to correctly choose winners and avoid losers, um, to, you know, create the, the, the trends and uh, technologies of the future. But in reality, as Koyman mentions and uh, uh, describes in her article, it's the LPs the the people managing the capital who are actually taking on much less of the risk because it's very rare um, that the LPs are putting up their own money, at least not in any serious way, um, compare in relative terms to the amount of money and capital that's being put up by these like, you know, big institutional investors, for example. And so again, another myth I want us to bust. And, you know, as we try, as we understand what the actual like value theory and value model of venture capital is, um, it is, it is not the fact, it is not the case that like, you know, these firms are risking it all by going after some, you know, unproven startup. Um, they are risking it all uh, they are risking uh, other people's money, right? Like right. that's ultimately what's going on here. You're sitting down, you're playing high stakes Texas Hold'em uh, with other people's money, um, but you get all the all the all you get washed in all the glory uh, if you happen to choose the the right unicorn or something like that. Yeah, you know, I think um, you know this is especially you know really something to consider because not you know especially with ChatGPT. And, and, you know, even also with Web3 in the past, because then you think simply about the division of, you know, where the hype, where the commentary, what the, uh, and where the visions for what to do with the tech come from and the, the divide, the chasm between those who are probably in the industry as, you know, one of the, one of the people pointed to in this article's, uh, Facebook's chief AI scientist, Jan Likun, right? Who's, um, you know, trying to push back against the idea that these AI models are particularly innovative while, you know, you have people who have everything to gain and benefit from personally and relatively little to lose risk-wise, insisting that this is revolutionary, this is part of the transformation of civilization, of labor, of, um, of, of education, of how we build things, of how we create art, how we generate culture. 
and and this is like just a very familiar hype cycle that we see where the people who have the most to gain, of course, are going to be hyping it up in ways that not only, of course, are propaganda to generate overinflation, but also try to propagandize the public with looking at how future technology development should be deployed in new and narrower ways, right? Because it's not simply that, you know, these people who are offering um, propaganda that's contradictory to what uh, operators inside the actual industry or field insist are, you know, just spewing the propaganda. It's not only that, it's also that, you know, they're, they're trying to convince the public that there are certain ways that these technologies, if they are as innovative as they claim, should be deployed, right? We should be using tech to make obsolete culture workers. We should be using tech to further quantify and mediate daily life through microtransactions and and uh, and quantified costs of trans of, of any transaction or interaction between people. We should turn more things into asset classes like nature and digital assets and ugly monkey pictures, right? We should use AI-generated content. We should use AI-generated content um, as a core driver of traffic for our news site. Like, these people... Even if the technology them is not where it is, by virtue of the dance that they have to do to generate returns or to generate exit opportunities and strategies, um, are reshaping people's visions, people's ideas, where money and effort and energy gets spent, and also how consumers, employers, workers, and regulators respond in anticipation of the world that this. Uh, that these are propagandists are insisting is just around the corner. And, and to that as well, this FT article links uh, a real a big report on generative AI from Sequoia Capital, uh, which I've only kind of glanced through. Um, but uh, with that report, they also released a a map of the market landscape for generative AI, or they call it the application landscape. And um, it looks very similar. I mean, it looks almost identical uh, in form to a lot of the very similar, like you know, maps of the Web three stack um, that I was that I saw last year. Especially ones were released by like Andreessen Horowitz. You know, so here we got Sequoia Capital um, doing the same thing, but for generative AI. Frankly, I am like, I'm so exhausted just looking at this application landscape. You know, for listeners, you know. Uh, uh, I posted this on Twitter um, a, a, a little while ago now, by the time you're hearing this, like, you know, a few days ago. Um, you can find it as well, you know, just look for, you know, Sequoia Capital Generative AI Application Landscape, or it's in the FT article. Regardless, you know, it's worth taking a look at just to also see, like, how many fucking startups and companies you've never heard of already are existing in this space and already like claiming to be like, you know, we're, we're in the, uh, you know, the, the generative AI, you know, text space and specifically the subspace of marketing, uh, or sales, or we're in the, uh, generative AI, uh, image space as specifically the subspace of design or advertising, right? Like, you know, like so many fucking companies here and it's exhausting to also know that like similar to web three, because it's the hell we've chosen for ourselves by this time next year, I will be entirely too familiar with many of these companies. Uh, there will be multiple 
crashes or controversies associated with at least some of these companies. And ultimately, none of it will matter, <laughs> right? Like, uh, it will be like Web3, like here today, gone tomorrow. Um, but in that intermittent time, uh, I had to spend a lot of time and energy uh, learning about this shit um, because, you know, it's it's the uh, uh, it's the tag you know it's the it's the tail that wags the dog um, in terms of like like the things that we have to put our energy and attention to just because of like the sheer force of capital uh, and and hype and hand waving that's being accompanied by it. Yeah, I mean, it, I I wonder, you know, what it would take really to destabilize this hype. I mean, like, you know, with crypto, what helped, what was a real big help with destabilizing things was that there was a liquidity crunch and that the liquidity crunch uh, just straight up just stole a lot of people's money and ate their lunch. And, and that is what it took for people to start souring on something, even though ideologically, even though productively, even though in every real sense, there's actually nothing there other than like, a self-dealing uh, series of Ponzi schemes, right? Um, but with generative AI, I mean, I don't know, like what what is the thing that kind of, what would suck the hype from it? Because I mean, even, you know, as this article ends on the example of Alphabet losing $50 billion after its own AI chatbot had a horrible premiere, I mean, it's still going to get that money back once it fixes it and people will forget about it and investors will keep pushing on, you know? So what, like, even we're getting, we're getting news of like, you know, uh, websites that are using chat GPT secretly or AI generated uh, headlines and, and writers without telling anyone else. And that hasn't seemed to deter the practice. Like what, actually sucks it in sucks out the air from here when it's not as much of an asset class as digital assets were right it's not the same it's not one to one i mean does it take a company going bankrupt does it take like none of the stuff they make to actually never materialize but then even then like what does that look like is that an uber is that a lyft situation where you just get rid of all the bullshit projects and then you focus on the fundamentally unworkable project it's a really good question because you're right. Like the political economy here is like totally different, right? It's not like all this like financial engineering for fictitious assets to bolster fictitious capital, right? Like, right. Um, I mean, I, I ultimately think that like, I suspect, and we talked about this in some previous episodes, but I suspect we might end up seeing more of like a, a uh, like a hyper concentration and consolidate like consolidation of, of the space, right. Where it's like, cause even if you look at the Sequoia capital application landscape for generative AI, you know, it's, there's tons of, of, of startups listed, you know, most of which you've never heard of, but in smaller text, um, beneath each of the like categories of like text, video, image, code, speech, uh, 3D, you know, smaller print, there's, you know, under each of these categories, it will say models and then colon and then list the actual like AI models that all these startups are being built on. Cause it's not like, 
you know, these dozens of startups are creating their own AI models. They're all like licensing one of like two or three models, right? So like for many of them, the models listed are uh, OpenAI GPT-3 or OpenAI Dolly 2, right? Like, you know, and so OpenAI has like already a massive uh, monopoly uh, in, in this space in terms of if we're looking at like the actual infrastructure, the models um, for these that these startups are relying on and using. There's also other ones, right? Especially with like text generative AI. There's a, there's more of them, but they're still big. It's like DeepMind, Gopher, Facebook, uh, Hugging Face, uh, you know, Anthropic, uh, you know, like, like there's a, you know, Alibaba, right? There's a lot more of those. But then if you look in other ones like Image, right, it only lists three models, you know, Dolly 2, Stable Diffusion or Crayon. Um, if you look at speech, it only lists open AI. Uh, if you look at code, it's, op it's open AI. Code Geeks or uh, Tabine, it's kind of small print, tab nine, tab nine, right? In other words, all I'm saying is that like, you know, we're already seeing this like consolidation of the models, right? Maybe a, a, a thousand startups are blooming, but they're all drawing from the same soil, right? They're all growing from the same source. And, and I think with, uh, you know, these, the big tech companies already getting in there in serious ways, you know, successfully or not, uh, as the case was with Alphabet's, you know, uh, trying, you know, Alphabet tried to demo their new, Right. It was, it was alpha. Yeah. It was alphabet. Alphabet tried to demo their new, uh, you know, AI powered search and the demo was filled with like errors and, and was wrong. And it, it was, uh, it caused their stock price to take a nice little plummet because of it. I, I think the, the, the function here, uh, or the, the, the features rather of this, of this market will be different. You are totally right to point that out. And this is not just like a web three, like redux, right? Uh, like, you know, it is in the sense of like, it's another big, sudden, massive, like, you know, hype cycle in the market, but the features of it look very, very different in terms of like who's being involved, what the technology is, where capital is coming from. I, I think as well that, what we'll end up seeing is probably VCs doing a lot of focus on acquisition, right? Like they're going to put some, they're going to put money into startups and then push these startups to get acquired. And that's the exit. Right. And I think this is also different than like we saw with the gig economy, uh, you know, web 2.0 kind of hype cycle uh, that gave birth to like Uber and Airbnb and Lyft and, you know, DoorDash and, you know, these kinds of companies, because like, this is a case where big tech was not getting into this space. Like they're like big, like, you know, Google was not trying to do their like their uber competitor right like facebook was not trying to do their like you know deliveroo competitor or whatever they were like this is not the space we work in right like y'all do your thing we're gonna do our thing maybe we'll chuck some money in as investors ourselves but like you know the like they they were two different markets happening right whereas i think with uh, and and similarly with web3 like they just kind of left it alone unless you were facebook um but they just kind of left it alone they were like all right like maybe we'll dabble 
Uh, but like, again, like this is y'all's thing. It ain't, it's not our thing. Oh, you know, generative AI comes around. They're immediately big tech, uh, companies are throwing their weight in, throwing their hat in the ring, you know, making their alliances, choosing their winners, right? Like that's very different. And I think a very important difference in the structure of the market for sure. Yeah. One thing I did enjoy about, you know, as much as I hated the crypto bubble, as it went on, we started to get really weird and esoteric and ideological projects as people tried to map on their politics onto some sort of political or economic system that centered these digital assets, you know, um, with probably the last interesting, and I use interesting not because the ideas are good or anything, but because, you know, interesting the way, you know, a child scribbling on a wall, you know, might be interesting, uh, is, uh, Balaji's um, the network state, and I'm curious what will, what the network state or what the equivalent um, larger societal vision we might get from some of these Chat GPT advocates is going to be, you know, because I think we got we get glimpses of it from like Sam Altman, and he ends up being the one that people talk to the most about this, and then other CEOs are like cagey and couch their shit and like, oh well, you know, this is the potential to change civilization or to change how we do things, whereas he's just like, we're going to get rid of capitalism. We're going to get rid of capitalism. We're going to make something better from the ashes of the old world. What what do they want? You know, I I think when I see a lot of these threads, it's from hustle people. We're kind of really just talking about how to like add 10% efficiency to your workflow, you know, like how to, how to like generate stuff that you can have easily edited by some program, how to generate spur creativity or productivity, how to like... Um, use something as uh, as a building block for another product and not like actually, let's say we do actually create innovative large language models or innovative uh, generative systems, whatever. What's going to be the pro- point of them? Like do what, to what purpose are we going to deploy them? What kind of goods are going to be made with them? What kind of services are going to be made from them? Because all I'm seeing right now is pretty much just like new markets. Let's just make new markets. Which is, um, you know, like, of course, to be expected from these people who, you know, uh, put money in anything or, you know, will sniff money from any anything that they think they can get it from. Um, but like, you know, what, what kind of weird ass world do these guys want? That's I'm all I'm always interested in that stuff because that's far more interesting to me than these bullshit. We just, we're going to hustle even harder next year, boys. This fiscal year, we're we're all on chat. GP, we're waiting for chat GPT four and then we're going to start writing our, our manifesto or some bullshit. I don't care about that. Write me a weird ass book like Balaji did where you envision redeploying um, the basis where you would envision destroying the Treaty of Westphalia and replacing it with a series of crypto communities across the world that operate on multiple <laughs> levels of different types of sovereignty and currencies and relation to one another. Like just, you know, that's what I want. Um, but also the danger is by the time we get, usually you get that near like, you know, when the bubble's gone for a little too long. And I don't want this bubble to go on for a little too long. <laughs> yeah, we might start getting the, well, the, the what we're going to end up getting is like, you know, a manifesto written by GPT-4, right? Like that's gonna, that's what it's going to oh, be. Oh, fuck. Yeah, and people are going to be like, oh, this is Rocco's Basilisk. That's right. That's right. It's going to be Rocco's Basilisk. That's going to be the, the, like the real weird shit that we get is like manifestos written by 
the 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 AI system itself, and then everyone's just like, "Damn, okay, like it's uh, you know, the, the GPT four has expressed its wishes, uh, and we have no, we must bow down." Mm-hmm. But in reality, I think it's just going to be a lot more fucking boring and mundane, yeah. right? Like a Microsoft executive, Charles uh, Lamana, who oversees the applications of you know, Microsoft builds for businesses, uh, said that when Microsoft and you know, last week announced its you know its its new like being you know its AI search for being and all of that. Um, uh, this exec at Microsoft said, "Quote: In the coming months, Microsoft plans to release features with generative AI on average every week." I mean, why does that sound like a threat? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like then you look at like what they're actually releasing, right? And like their first, mm-hmm. their first, you know. Uh, open AI, you know, application um, is, you know, here's what, here's the description of it, right? Viva Cells will now generate suggested email content for a variety of scenarios, such as replying to an inquiry or creating a proposal, complete with data specifically relevant to the recipient, such as pricing, promotions, and deadlines. By auto-suggesting customizable content, sellers can spend less time composing emails and searching for sales data from colleagues and databases. Why is this important? According to new research commissioned by Microsoft, Managing email consumes over 66% of a seller's day. This new AI-powered capability helps sellers recapture this valuable time, empowering them to focus time on what matters most. This is this is the reality of this shit. Talk shit. It's pathetic. Are we doomed to a world where every tech development is just uh, a way for you to be a better worker or to uh, generate more returns for, from your boss's 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 best friend? You know, like, come on. It's, I hate it. I fucking hate it. This is the how teleology of capital. How to send like a good little boy. Yeah, I mean, this is the teleology of capitalism. It was, uh, you know, this was the, this, you know, 400 years ago, when those European merchants, when those Dutch started thinking of things like corporations, you know, when the, when those merchants began to, uh, uh, invest in expansion and accumulation of capital, you know, this, this is the ultimate goal that the, the endpoint they were leading us to. It's, this is 400, Viva sells is 400 years in the making, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> This is what they were thinking of uh, when they landed on Plymouth Rock, you know, how to do, how to, how to make sure that in 400 years, all our Protestant children are good little workers. I hate it. I really do. I think, you know, let's make, um, let's make a chat GPT bot that figures out how to, how to make your, how to like, you know, make your boss go crazy and quit the job. You know, I would like that, you know, send, Send emails from unspecified sources and letters and mail that um, convinces your boss to quit. Uh, ChatGPT to help sabotage the workplace. <laughs> to uh, unionize the workplace, you know. Hey, let's do that. Yeah, maybe that'll be something good. Someone can come up with uh, with uh, literature and propaganda about why a union place sh- uh, workplace should be unionized with um, with a, j- a chatbot. Mm, I, do yeah, I need I'm, to I'm, sign I'm this still- union card here? I'm still skeptical of uh oh, yeah, I am of comrade AI, of comrade uh, the... GPT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
uh, yeah, to <laughs> just the boss in like a big red hat. Let's say his comrade <laughs> explaining. <laughs> you want to learn about unions? <laughs> I'm gonna go on when I don't. I don't think GPT three. I don't think Chat GPT could handle it. But when GPT four re- comes out, first thing I'm gonna do is say, write the Communist Manifesto, but pro capitalist. <laughs> and then that that's that's the real revolution the capitalist manifesto <laughs> that's yeah, right you know listen i think you know the, you, we need one you're right i would actually i would really love to read a good capitalist manifesto i haven't really read one they're on, you know they don't speak to me the way communist manifesto was spitting Hey, if you want the capitalist manifesto, look around you, buddy. You got electricity, you got refrigerators, <laughs> oh you got TVs. That's the capitalist manifesto. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, you're right. How could I forget? Them shoes the world on your I feet? Is, That's a capitalist yeah. manifesto. <laughs> I got money in my wallet. It's it's the old, uh, Jeremy knows this old you know uh, street scam, right? You go up to somebody, you say, I bet you $20 I can tell you where you got them shoes at. You got them on your feet. (laughs) (laughs) And instead I'll go, instead I'll go to somebody and say, I bet you $20 I can tell you where you got them shoes from. They say, no, you can't. No, you can't say capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) Money, please. Money, please. Speaking of all the generative AI shit, I mean, one day we will stop talking about this as well. I'm already, I'm already exhausted mm. talking about like constantly. And uh, in, in the premium episode, uh, we will not be talking about generative AI. That's that's my promise. We'll be talking about good old fashioned industrial policy. Um, that's that's what we're going to be talking about. But before then, I do want to wrap up this episode by at least shouting out. Uh, a, a, an extremely good essay in the New Yorker by Ted Chiang um, on ChatGPT. Uh, it's called ChatGPT is a blurry JPEG of the web. It's a really fucking good article. That's all I got to say, right? It's a really good article that provides like an extremely uh, clear and clever um, analogy for understanding how ChatGPT works by explaining uh, large language models um, in terms of essentially being like hyper compressed images of the entire web, right? Like a, a, a very, lo- like a lossy compression of a JPEG of the entire internet, right? Like that's, that's, that's the analogy in a nutshell. I think it's a really, it's a really interesting one. I think it's a really clever one. I think it really clarifies a lot in terms of like the, like the uh, the kind of operations and bo- and outcomes of these large language models, um, yeah, I don't know. It's like you know, I I I love uh, you know, obviously like Ch- Ted Chiang's fiction is fantastic, right? Like peer to none, um, but it's really his nonfiction that I could read forever. Like I I love his nonfiction so much and with when want him to write more and more of it for sure yeah you know i i, I want to read a, a specific section which 
I really love, and it kind of hones in on that metaphor of the blurry uh, JPEG one because it is, you know, his nonfiction is where he, you know, his fiction I really love. I love his sci-fi, you know, but his nonfiction I do, like you said, shines because he's able to really unfurl uh, pretty complicated ideas and then make them uh palatable in a way that it makes immediate intuitive sense right and the blurry jpeg example is you know just the latest from him uh, he writes um what i've described sounds a lot like chat gpt or most any other large language model think of chat gpt as a blurry jpeg of all the text on the web it retains much of the information on the web in the same way jpeg retains much of the information of a higher resolution image but if you're looking for an exact sequence of bits, you won't find it. All you will ever get is an approximation. But because the approximation is presented in the form of grammatical text, which ChatGPT excels at creating, it's usually acceptable. You're still looking at a blurry JPEG, but the blurriness occurs in a way that doesn't make the image as a whole look less sharp. And then a little bit further on, he goes on to, you know, to write, imagine what it would look like if ChatGPT were a lossless algorithm. If that were the case, it would always answer questions by providing a verbatim quote from a relevant web page. We would probably regard the software as only a slight improvement over a conventional search engine and be less impressed by it. The fact that ChatGPT rephrases material from the web instead of quoting it word for word makes it seem like a student expressing ideas in her own words rather than simply regurgitating what she's read. It creates the illusion that ChatGPT understands the material. In human students, rote memorization isn't an indicator of genuine learning, so ChatGPT's inability to produce exact quotes from web pages is precisely what makes us think it has learned something. When we're dealing with sequences of word, lossy compression looks smarter than lossless compression. That, I think, is like really, you know, a smart way to kind of also hone in on why there is a, a, an inability of people to kind of break away from being impressed by, you know, ChatGPT because it's able, you know, to, when things simulate human language, um, in conversation, they immediately take on uh, a sort of intelligence that you know, it resembles ours because there's not really much else that does that except things we make. You know, animals uh, can't do that no matter how intelligent they are, no matter what sort of emotional world or, you know, social life they might have. Um, well, whether they're you know non-human persons like like elephants or or you know, primates or um, you know or crows or you know some species of parrots or pigs whatever it is right it doesn't really matter how highly developed this animal's sense of identity might be it's not it, it doesn't converse with us and and so part of the thing that's going on here is like we we've been trained to associate intelligence in specific forms. Um, so language, but also certain types of language, and and ChatGPT is spitting out an output that takes advantage of that, right? But that still then you know leads us to a larger question where it's like, okay, so we have something that looks impressive and maybe feels a bit impressive, but like, what do we, what do we actually want to do with it, right? You know, can we, for example, as Bing is starting to do, replace them with, uh, use them to replace? Uh, the operations of search engines or to amplify and augment them. Uh, can we use them to create new web content, right? And, you know, to these 
points. Ted Chang is skeptical of the ability here, right? You know, when when he talks about search engines, right? Yeah, as he writes, for us to have confidence in them, we would need to know they haven't been fed propaganda and conspiracy theories. We'd need to know that the JPEG is capturing the right sections of the web. But even if a large language model includes only the information we want, there's still the matter of blurriness. There's a type of blurriness that is acceptable, which is the restating of information in different words. And there's the blurriness of outright fabrication, which we consider unacceptable when we're looking for facts. It's not clear that it's technically possible to retain the acceptable kind of blurriness while eliminating the unacceptable kind. But I expect that we'll find out in the near future. And again, the blurriness metaphor being really good and, and insightful here, right? That it is easy to think we can just find some sort of technical solution um, and, uh, to all our problems facing chat GPT and facing these large language models, right? But by providing us with this metaphor to intuitively understand it, unveiling that there are some fundamental obstacles here because it is not actually something intelligent right it's taking and repat and, and compressing information and losing some of the you know some of the specificities of it because it's relying on is a mastery of precise statistical anomalies to recreate and generate uh, language right um, and represent it even if it doesn't actually hold all of it um, represent a huge amount of the internet even if it doesn't even if it's trained off a small part of it and you know, represent or generate a large amount of human language even if it's only trained off of a very 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 small narrow subset of a, a digitally inf infinite or potentially infinite language system and 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 similarly when it comes to web content you know then the question is like okay what do would we want to do with the web content? One, you know, there's still the above question that was raised about whether it's even possible to prevent fabrication, right? But it, let's say it was, then can we do generation of content, right? And he, and he writes, this would make sense only if our goal is to repackage information that's already available on the web. Some companies exist to do that. We usually just call them content mills. Perhaps the blurriness of large language models will be useful to them as a way of avoiding copyright infringement. Generally speaking, though, I'd say that anything that's good for content mills is not good for people searching for information. The rise of this type of repackaging is what makes it harder for us to find what we're looking for online right now. The more text generated by large language models that gets published on the web, the more the web becomes a blurrier version of itself, right? That's also another interesting sort of insight to add on, right? By virtue of pushing ChatGPT and these AI generation models and integrating them into business models, integrating them into news content, integrating them into creating things on the internet for people, integrating them into generating art and culture and films and scripts and so on and so forth, it's going to make blurrier the referent that will train future data sets and probably contribute to a harder to navigate and less desirable um, internet for all of us, while at the same time being offered as a way to streamline, you know, productivity and labor costs and 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 and, and amplify creativity and create a better internet. And and to that, you know, Ted Chiang then from that point leads to a really nice, like a uh, you know, a, a criterion, a kind of nice principle that I all, I want to read as well. Um, I think it's a fantastic kind of first level criterion for um, large language models. Where he writes, you know, quote. 
Indeed, a useful criterion for gauging a large language model's quality might be the willingness of a company to use the text that it generates as training material for a new model. If the output of chat GPT is not good enough for GPT-4, we might take that as an indicator that it's not good enough for us either. Conversely, if a model starts generating text so good that it can be used to train new models, then that should give us confidence in the quality of the text. I sus you know, in, in a parenthetical, he writes, I suspect that such an outcome would require a major breakthrough in the techniques used to build these models. If and when we start seeing models producing output that's as good as their input, then the analogy of lossy compression will no longer be applicable. I think that's a really good kind of principle here. It's really based on the old dog fruiting principle, right? Like, is your product so good that you would happily eat it? Or are you only willing to feed it to others, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and you know, the assumption, you know, a couple assumptions here, right? The assumption here um, that Ted Chiang uh, has is that, you know, companies like OpenAI are going to great uh, extents to ensure that, the outputs of ChatGPT are not being used to train GPT-4. And I think there's good reason for that, right? Like, this is that you, you end up with a Habsburg AI, right? It's like so, in, it's so inbred uh, with itself that it's like, you know, it, it just replicates all of these mutations um, uh, and, and it, you know, it, it becomes a weaker model if it's, you know, if it's, eating its own shit, right? <laughs> then it just becomes a weaker model in that way. The other assumption here is that, of course, uh, it presumes that companies like OpenAI won't happily eat their own shit and eat their own garbage and tell us it tastes delicious because it's a lot easier and cheaper to do that than the alternative, right? Uh, which, you know, big assumption too because everything we know is that cheap and easy data is the primary source of capital, the primary resource that these companies rely upon. And, you know, using really garbage and shitty and inappropriate data to train models um, has not, like, they've done that in the past, right? It hasn't stopped them in the past. Uh -huh. and, and so, you know, they may very well do it now. But, you know, the assumption here is that They've got a lot of, they've got a lot riding on these, on these AI models, um, and that they, they are going, then they're going to great extents to ensure that they are trained, um, in such a way where they don't end up being, you know, what we might call Habsburg AI, right? You heard of Potemkin AI? Well, now we got Habsburg <laughs> AI, right? It's AI trained on AI that ends up replicating, mutating, burying, uh, and, and like exponentially emphasizing all, all these like in, in, uh, integral mutations, uh, and, 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 uh, you know, awful qualities. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's another another coin term from you, Jathan Habsburg AI. Um, you <laughs> Might have write, to write should, the essay. Write the essay write about essay. It, Habsburg AI. <laughs> 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 oh God! On that, uh, Ted Chiang also ended this article with a really great kind of like very thoughtful, considered kind of meditation on like on the practice, on the utility uh, and practice of writing and the utility of using a, uh, like chat GPT as a writing tool. Uh, that is like, honestly, some of the most thoughtful comments I've seen about it. I won't read the whole paragraph, you know, but I, I do like 
where just pull out a, a, a little bit here as we wrap this episode up um, where he says, it's not the case that once you have ceased to be a student, you can safely use the template that a large language model provides. The struggle to express your thoughts does not disappear once you graduate. It can take place every time you start drafting a new piece. Sometimes it's only the process of writing that you discover your original ideas. Some might say that the output of large language models doesn't look all that different from a human writer's first draft. But again, I think this is a superficial resemblance. Your first draft isn't an unoriginal idea expressed clearly. It's an original idea expressed poorly. And it is accompanied by your amorphous dissatisfaction, your awareness of the distance between what it says and what you want to say. That's what directs you during rewriting. And that's one of the things lacking when you start with text generated by an AI. There's nothing magical or mystical about writing but it involves more than placing an existing document on an unreliable photocopier and pressing the print button. I just really like that as a kind of meditation on the, the practice and purpose of writing and the utility of these tools or disutility of these tools for that. I had a couple of tweets, uh, uh, especially one screenshotting this, you know, that paragraph and the preceding paragraph kind of take off and do some, do some real numbers. So I got to see a, uh, as well, like a lot of people uh, in my mentions kind of discussing uh, Jiang's piece. And through that and through some other tweets I, I saw getting circulated, I do also, just before we leave, I want to highlight as well that as much as I think that Ted Jiang's article is fucking brilliant, and I think it's such a clever analogy, and it's one of the clearest descriptions I've seen of how uh, you know, large language models essentially work. Um, and, and, you know, uh, I will say as well, uh, not every, it was not universal acclaim, uh, of the article. I did see a number of people, especially weirdly, uh, people associated either directly with open AI or associated with other generative AI startups and, and, and research, um, be a little butthurt. <laughs> about this article yeah there was some there's some deep mind uh i saw deep mind a criticism from deep mind uh criticism from some professors uh, basically being mad and saying and and trying to politely or intelligently be like this is stupid but that's the extent of their criticism a lot of yeah. the a lot of the critiques i saw uh were people taking issue with the analogy of lossy compression um, by treating it not as an analogy uh, to help explain the system, but as a literal technical description of the system. So like a lot of it I saw was either like really bad misunderstandings of the, of the purpose of an analogy uh, or bad faith. Uh, intentional misunderstandings and conflations of that, like, you know, Ted Jiang is not saying large language models work exactly like lossy compression algorithms for JPEGs or, or MP3s, right? He's saying they do something similar to that. And here's how that, here's why it's similar and how and what that means. A lot of the, a lot of the butthurt tweets and threads I saw were also people, <laughs> ironically, for as like, clear and compelling as Ted Chiang's article is, 
the people uh, from like DeepMind or OpenAI or other places like that that are like being like thread time, you know, buckle up, fuckos. <laughs> you know, <laughs> their their threads were uh, extremely obtuse and unclear and poorly articulated, right? Like maybe like the the Chat GPT write your critique. Uh, <laughs> you need to spend some time uh, articulating what you what you want to say and saying it right, and and I, I don't know. It's just or it's either these like pure, poorly articulated up two threads, and often also it's like then it's just uh, tweets with a bunch of links to papers on archive, right? Being like, you need to go read all these like obtuse technical papers on archive to really understand how these systems work. And, you know, to me, a lot of it really felt like strong gatekeeping. A lot of it really felt like, you know, posing criticisms or being like, I'm deeply disappointed to see this article get, you know, shared so widely and then like not explain or offer any better alternative as like any better alternative descriptions, uh, any better alternative, you know, any better critiques of the analogy other than being like, I'm disappointed or this is wrong or you, you know, you're dumb unless you go read like, you know, all of these papers from archive I'm linking, some of which are my papers just coincidentally, right? Go, you know, like, uh, <laughs> it, like to me, it's tantamount to people saying that like, unless your understanding is perfect, literal, and technical in a way that I deem perfect, literal, and technical enough, then your understanding or your analogy or your description is wrong and worthless, right? Like, in other words, like, quit trying to demystify my mystical arts, right? Like, quit trying to make this thing understandable. Um, quit trying to make this complex system understandable to uh, uh, people who are not actively and materially uh, invested in the operations of this complex system. That that's what it reads to me. Like I've not seen anything like a compelling um, criticism, uh, counter argument, or alternative to, uh, explanation um, to to Jiang's article. Yeah, man, it's it's very it's very it's giving very like don't look behind the fucking curtain. Um, and uh, Wizard of Oz vibes or the Wiz because I've never seen Wizard of the Oz I know, Wizard of Oz I don't know exactly how it goes but you know I think then you know this does also suggest that Visions 4 or that there should be a lot more skepticism for Visions of applying chat GPT to reshaping the internet because they're like, you know, as we've been talking about here, they're just like fundamental inabilities and, and, and adhering to that principle you talked about is a good way. One of the, one of the many ways in which people can kind of just like move forward thinking about, okay, like what actually do, what kind of, you know, intentionally thinking about what kind of world do we actually want? You know, and what kind of worlds do we want just because we can imagine it versus what sort of world is like actually has something worth pursuing? Are we interested in developing some of these things? What are the consequences of those? Are we more interested in develop the th developing the things so we can develop it? Or are we interested in preserving some things? And I think some of the things to be preserved, right, are, you know, of course, like humans generating, organizing, designing a lot of the internet, um, or as much as possible, even though I know a lot of it is already mediated by automated agents or actors that aren't exactly human, but, but that they're human somewhere in the system, right? But 
you know, what, what do we actually want? It's not a question that we get to indulge ourselves in. It's more so a question that like, uh, you know, the masters of the universe and the people with more money than God get to ask and, and, and in one way or another, try to convince us to come along with them with, right. You know, that the vision of the future that is actually desirable. What you really want is to be able to, to have, um, a blurry image, a blurry JPEG of the internet. Or, you know, all these inefficient tools or replicants or, uh, or you know, copies of human activity. But what we're really interested in and what we should be interested in and being antagonistic about is like, how do we, you know, preserve and expand the realm and freedom and support to humans generating whatever it is they want, whether it is art, whether it's culture, whether it's just writing, you know, and how do we push back against AI's uh, being used as a bludgeon to try to narrow the realm of human freedom that you're able to do uh, uh, to think within or at write it within, generate it within. Um, and also like, you know, to what extent can AI be used to preserve the boundaries of that and expand them further if possible at all, because it may be the case that they're not, it's not possible. And in that case, then we should get rid of it in the generative models, but how, you know, that should be the goal, not like which, you know, which way can we expand the market or grow the market or grow a customer base or, you know, attract investors, of course. But, you know, we're, that's, you know, why we are not the venture capitalists and they are because <laughs> we don't believe in that. Here, here. <laughs> all right. I think that I think that's a nice place to end this episode. Um, thank you all for listening. You can find us as always at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Uh, we'll be ducking into the premium feed now um, for an episode uh, looking at uh, industrial pol- uh, American industrial policy, Chinese industrial policy, uh, and the conflict between the two. No more generative AI uh, for now. No more open AI. None, none of that. None of that. Uh, done talking about it uh, until something in, until something more interesting happens. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna shift gears. Get get into some old classic TMK content over on the premium feed. So find us there. Uh, and until next time, later. Adios.